You're listening to Everybody Pulls the Tarp, the go-to podcast for high performers. I'm Andrew Moses. Each week, you'll hear my thought-provoking conversations with Olympians, pro athletes, CEOs, elite coaches, best-selling authors, and other high performers to uncover their secrets to success. Get ready to be inspired each week when we talk about leadership, teamwork, work ethic, and more. Are you ready? Let's go. This week, my guest is Duke University head football coach, Mike Elko. In 2022, Mike was named ACC Coach of the Year in just his first season at Duke University. He took over a team that was 3-9 and nine the previous season and swiftly turned things around, leading Duke to a 9-4 and four record the following year. Prior to Duke, Mike served as Texas A&M's defensive coordinator, where he led the team to a top three national ranking in scoring defense. Mike is a two-time semifinalist for the Frank Broyles Award, which is given annually to the top assistant coach in all of college football. We recently sat down to explore his career and the mindsets, tools, and leadership philosophies powering the turnaround he's leading at Duke. Our conversation is filled with powerful leadership and career lessons that you can apply to anything. You'll hear actionable ideas on balancing competing priorities, communicating a clear vision, leading with authenticity, and so much more. Grab a notebook. This one is jam-packed, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So, let's pull the tarp and get straight to Mike Elko. Where I want to begin, Coach, you took over a team at Duke that, that was coming off a 3-9 and nine season, 0-8 in ACC play the prior year. You led them to a 9-4 and four overall record, 5-3 and three in conference play, and you took home ACC Coach of the Year honors. I'm curious, what were some of the things that you focused on in those first few months to get things back on track and, and ultimately get yourself settled in the new job? Yeah, I mean, I think so many things. Like, obviously, it was my first time as a head football coach. And so you have all these like things you want to do, but then you got to you got to make them specific to the program that you're taking over. And so I think the first thing we really tried to do was listen to the players. I think we had a lot of a lot of meetings early on. I, I met with every player on the team one on one. We formed a leadership council that I started meeting with, and I kind of wanted to get a pulse from them of why they internally felt like things had gone awry a little bit. You know, they had had a run of success, and you know, clearly it had slipped a little bit. And you just kind of want to get a, a lay of the land of what was I dealing with, right? I think so. It started there, and then I think from there we just wanted to start to formulate investment in the program. I think we talked a lot about reinvesting everybody into the program and, and building trust through hard work and work ethic. And so we cranked up the weight room, we cranked up the winter conditioning program, and we really just, I think, started pushing guys to limits maybe they hadn't been before. And through all that, I think we built a lot of confidence, a lot of camaraderie, and a lot of culture in that locker room. Uh, and it really started from there and kind of grew. Coach, was there one or two things in particular that, that stuck out to you the most when you were having those conversations with the players and the people around the program? Was there a common theme or something that really stood out to you? Yeah, I think the biggest theme was we could do a lot better to get a lot of easy wins in our locker room. You know, little things like our nutrition program. We could make it more convenient for our kids. We could make it better quality for our kids. That would be a huge win. On-campus housing was something that we could do a lot better that was an easy win. And so there were a lot of easy wins that I felt like were out there 
to build trust that I think we took advantage of. Coach, I, I've talked to so many coaches, especially college coaches, who who talk about those first few weeks and months when you step into a new role, especially when it's the first time you're in a, in, in a head coaching role. They call it a whirlwind. It, it's dizzying. <laughs> and based on how you're smiling when I said that, you probably feel the same way. I'm curious, when you got on campus you know, and you started to, to go through those paces and, and talk to the players and really dig in, what did you do to really make sure you were focusing your attention in the right places and prioritizing things the right way? Because it, it has to be a different set of circumstances when you're the head coach as compared to an assistant. Yeah, I, I think that was honestly the hardest thing was how do you compartmentalize and, and actually attack something and not allow the flow of the job to pull you in every direction? And I think that's probably the biggest lesson I would give to a person stepping into this role. And, and I think what I ultimately settled on was I had to formulate a plan. These are the things I'm attacking today. And anything that comes at me from the outside, if it's not extremely critical, it's just got to go onto the bucket list for another day because it, it's you can't appreciate how much gets thrown at you. And so you're focused on something, you're working on something, and then next thing you know, it's two hours later and you've just gone 180 degrees in another direction. You don't even know how you got there. And so that probably was the biggest thing, just becoming more task-oriented and not allowing circumstances to change that. I'm thinking back to a conversation that I had with with Micah Shrewsbury, who's the head basketball coach at Notre Dame now. But we talked in the first few months when he had taken the job at Penn State. And Coach Shrewsbury told me that a mentor told him, Coach, you cannot catch every raindrop. <laughs> I'll never forget that line. He said, you can run around and you can try, but it's not going to work. You can't catch yeah. every raindrop. Yeah. I think that might resonate with you as well, Coach. Yeah, very appropriate. Yeah, and that's what it feels like. And, and you, as the leader of the organization, you feel like you have to fix every problem the second it gets put on your desk and you can get caught chasing things and not fixing any problems. And so it took a couple of days. I don't think it didn't take that long, but it took a couple of days to just realize like, okay, hey, like we got to attack what we can attack and, and we're not going to get to everything every day. Coach, this, this show is called Everybody Pulls the Tarp, and it's all based upon leadership and life philosophy that I developed over 20 years ago when I was working in minor league baseball. And the story goes, I show up on the first day for what was a front office internship, and the general manager of the team said, bring a pair of old clothes tomorrow and keep them in the locker room because we're going to need your help pulling the tarp on and off the field when it rains. And what I didn't realize was that minor league grounds crews, although they're tending to the same grass, the same dirt, the same field size as their big league counterparts have much smaller staff, much uh, smaller budgets, and obviously a, a similar job to do. So everybody in the minor leagues pulls the tarp, the CEO, the CMO, the head of finance, and all the interns with the grounds crew. It was one of the coolest career and life experiences I've ever had because it taught me the powerful lesson that really no task is beneath me and that the most successful people, the, most, the people you want to be around never say that's not my job. But I'm curious, you've been part of a lot of smaller programs than, than Duke football. You've probably had to wear a lot of different hats. How do you figure out that right balance between being willing and humble enough to take on any task that's going to help the team, but also make sure that you are delegating appropriately and, and getting the right people on the bus to help you as well? Yeah, I think that's a learned skill that I've probably developed over the years. You know, I, I started at the Division three level 
where I was working as like the assistant counselor in the admissions office, right? And that was my part-time job aside from coaching football because that's what I had to do. And then you're doing everything, right? There's nobody in the office to help you do anything to a place at Texas A&M where you have seven analysts just on defense and you're trying to figure out how to use everybody. And so I think probably over the course of time, what, what you learn is, you know, what are the important things to you? What are the things that you really have to do one, to just kind of win the trust of your coaches, but also to win the trust of your locker room and not to be far removed from certain aspects of the program that are really, really important to you. And then how do you delegate things in a way that you have some type of quality control because you are responsible for everything, but you know you allow people to put their, their own stamp and their own opinions on things. And so I think it's a learned skill. I think it's something over the course of time that I've gotten better at. I've I've been fortunate because I've kind of step-laddered my way all the way up. And so it's been a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. You just kind of have to learn how to utilize people and their skill sets. Coach, I'm wondering, how would you define your leadership style? Leadership style is something that you know I think can mean something to different people. How would you define leadership for you? Yeah, I, I think it's two things because people ask me that question a lot. I think I think one is we try to be extremely organized and, and conscious of everybody in this building. And I think prioritizing the importance of everyone in the building. And so we try to run a really organized program. We try to run detailed thing that everybody knows what's happening at all times. That way, if you come through here and you talk to anybody, they know the schedule, they know the mindset, they know what we're trying to get accomplished you can get the same messaging about where Duke football is trying to go from everybody. And then I think in terms of coaching leadership style, I think I'm just extremely open and honest with kids. I think I learned years ago that you know this generation really, really resonates with people who are just real with them and people that will look them in the eye and, and tell them the truth and, and not try to talk around things and not try to, to make things something that they're not. I think kids just really appreciate genuine honesty. Uh, and I think that's what I try to bring. How do you go about making, going back to that first point you made about the message, making sure that everybody, everyone understands what the message, no matter who you ask around the program, you're going to get a consistent message. How do you communicate that message? And how do you make sure that everybody understands and is, is speaking from the, the same sheet of music? Yeah, I think it's a lot of levels. I think one, it starts with just hiring people that you trust and hiring good people that you know are going to try to carry out the message. It starts there. And then I think it's, you know, we have daily staff meetings with everybody in the building so that we're taking time to make sure everybody knows what's going on. And then it goes even further to follow up and have individual interpersonal relationships with everybody in the building, right? And be able to know everybody by name and talk to everybody. You know, a football organization is huge. But you can't walk around as the head coach and not be able to sit down and have one-on-one conversations with everyone in the building. And I think that's probably something I learned over the course of time that resonates with our staff, I think. People talk about your relatability. And as you were talking about the transparency and the authenticity of a minute or so ago, I was thinking about that. I'm, I'm wondering, what do you think makes you so relatable to players over a, a relatively long career that you've had where the game has changed, the, the players have changed, and everything has changed, really. What makes you so relatable over time? Maybe it's just an appreciation for who they are and listening and hearing their stories over the years. 
which I think has kind of given me an understanding of what this generation is about and then specifically what each kid is about, right? And so you sit down with each kid in a one-on-one meeting and that can go a couple different ways. You can push your messaging on them. You can push your opinions on them or you can bring them in and you can allow them to speak and you can be open-minded and listen and hear what they're really saying, which lets you kind of get a little bit of an insight into who they really are. And I think I've just always tried to be a really good listener to people. And then I think I have a, I have a unique background. I've seen the world from a lot of different ways, right? I, I grew up in a trailer park. I went to the university of Pennsylvania. And so you, you can kind of see things from a lot of different avenues and, and you realize that everyone that you come across has value and has stories, no matter what you may think about them when you first meet them. And so just trying to really dig into a lot of that stuff, I think helps. Do you think that a limitation of leaders maybe who aren't as successful is that they maybe judge the book by its cover? They, they hear something about a person and then they jump to a conclusion or they limit what they think that person's potential is. Do you think that's something that's a limitation for leaders? Yeah, I I think so. And I I think, honestly, I I think maybe this is something I learned along the way that was really helpful for me. And it was, don't spend as much time worrying about leading, spend a lot of time worrying about who's following. And if you can get a lot of people to follow you, then you're being a really good leader. If you spend all your time trying to sit on top of everything and worried about leading and leading and leading, you may turn around one day and no one's behind you. What does it look like when people are following you? It looks like the culture at Duke right now. I mean, it just looks like a lot of people pulling in the same direction, really excited, willing to go the extra mile for each other. I think there's a strong belief in just what we're doing and who we are. And I think what that does is it allows you to overcome all those little bumps in the road that happen with the building of any good organization, right? It's it's okay, hey, this happened, but you know what? It's not a big deal because we know we're all in this together. You know, we know we're good people, whether we lose a game, have a bad practice, lose a recruit, miss up something with the practice script, like whatever little bump in the road can happen. I think culture allows you to push your way through a lot of those things without splintering. How do you handle those bumps in the road when they, they inevitably pop up from time to time, no matter how tight of a program you run or how successful a a team or any organization is, how do you respond when they pop up? How do you deal with those? Yeah. I think what you try to do is, is you believe in the intent of the people who make mistakes in your organization. And so you try to stay as level-headed as you can. There's obviously times as the leader where you have to address things appropriately. But for the most part, you try to stay level-headed and you try to do a lot of quality control. And, and we're always trying to make this thing run as efficiently and effectively as possible. And that's from me and, and my leadership style and the things that I'm doing all the way down to the lowest people in the building and just try to get ultimate efficiency in this organization. People talk about your it's just your deep understanding of football. And I believe in high school, you played quarterback and in college, you shifted to the defensive side of the ball and you've spent a lot of time mastering the defensive side of the ball since then as a coach. What is it about the game of football and about you that that's enabled you to just gain such a deep, deep understanding? Everybody who talks about you says he's got such a mastery of the game. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. I think, I think one, the game has always made sense to me. You know, everyone kind of has that a little bit. And so 
I could always understand it better than I could play it. Honestly, people ask me what position you played in college. I said I was the right wing on the punt team. That was where my that was where my athleticism took me. But I think it does start that. I, I do think it comes somewhat natural to me. I understand it well. But then I was I was lucky because I had a, a unique experience I, in both ways. I never really had that like mentor defensive coordinator. Like I didn't get to GA for one of the great defensive coordinators in the game. You know, and so I was always in a situation where I was having to learn and figure stuff out. And I think that makes you a better thinker because you have to think through what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. And then I spent my entire career as a defensive coordinator working for offensive head coaches. And I think that like broadened my perspective on how to think about things because they would never come in with ideas and concepts about plays on defense. It was always ideas and concepts about what the offense was doing or how the offense was thinking about attacking us. And I think that created maybe this overall view of the game of football that I've been able to utilize. When you have this, this deep understanding of something, anything, whatever it is, no matter how you've accumulated that understanding and that breadth of expertise, others that you have to communicate with are going to have different levels of understanding of different things. How do you make sure that your message lands with each individual, right? Because I would imagine that whether it's your assistants, folks on your staff, or players, everybody has a different way of absorbing information that you're trying to communicate. How do you make sure that that message is being heard, that you're communicating it clearly? Yeah, I think with the players early on, I learned that that a lot of back and forth communication was critical. The, the easiest way to figure out if somebody's learning what you're saying is to force them to give it back to you in some type of way. And like, not necessarily word for word, but just to make sure in their own words, they can conceptualize what you're saying to them. And so I think that was my teaching style as a position coach. And then I think it grew when I became a coordinator. And then I think what I learned early on as a coordinator was you had to kind of apply that same thing to coaches. When you get into a coaching staff, you have so many guys with so many different backgrounds or ideas or thoughts on how things go. And sometimes people try to take half of what you say and just instantly apply it. Oh, he just means this. And that's where I think sometimes wires can get crossed. And so just making, you know, getting coaches in positions where they're speaking back to you so that you're always on the same language. I think that's kind of what we've done. Going back to what you were saying a couple of minutes ago about not necessarily working for one of these elite defensive wizards that would become a a mentor. You had to figure out a lot on your own. Do you think that if people are paired with folks that kind of spoon feed them too much, that kind of drag them along with them, that they just sub-optimize their learning and development? Some do. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is, is learning how to think about the why. I think That's one of the things that I always try to push on the young coaches that have worked for me is don't do anything just because it's what you do. Like understand why you do something, understand why it has success, because then that's going to allow you to apply it appropriately at the right time. Everything can work. Everything can not work. That's just the nature of calling defenses. It's the nature of calling football in any way, shape or form spend a lot of time focused on why things are working and then maybe you can pair them the right way as you move forward. When you're coaching specifically defense and you're trying to neutralize the other team's most meaningful offensive weapons, are you spending more time thinking about 
yourself and kind of like looking inward or are you spending more time thinking about what the other team's going to do? Yeah, it's a combination of both. I think what we spend a lot of time with is on matchups. We're looking at matchups and and how do we control matchups to be the best of our advantage, right? And it's maybe we don't have a guy that can cover their best receiver man-to-man, which means we better find a way to devise a plan that that doesn't have that as a huge part of it. Or, you know, maybe it's a team that the running back is extremely talented and we're going to have to find creative ways because we might not be able to just tackle him solidly all day. And so how are we going to disrupt his run timing so that he doesn't get the head of steam that makes him a menace all day? I think we spend a lot of time on matchups. I think that's probably how we look at the game. And, and maybe that's a little different. It's not necessarily just about play calling. It's how you create those matchups to be in your favor. Coach, there's no question your work ethic is unmatched. People talk about your work ethic, Coach Elko's work ethic. I've heard you say that you know your parents were a big part of that, that watching and observing your parents are a big part of you know what shaped your work ethic as a youngster. You, you obviously you know, mentioned earlier your humble beginnings. I'm curious, what was it about your parents and, and what you saw as a, as a youngster that shaped that work ethic, do you think? Yeah, I think it's just the simple part of the story. Like My mom was 16, my dad was 19. They both dropped out of high school. Um, and as soon as that happens, it's all about finding a way. And there was no easy path for them. And I think, you know, my dad worked at in Penn Station, New York City, in the Amtrak train station and and had to take the train in and out of work every day. And my mom luckily got in with the post office and, and she was working early morning shifts. And just what we learned was how to find a way. And and we had what we needed. We didn't certainly would never call it a struggle. We came from where we came from, but you know, we just found a way to be successful. And I think that's that's probably the mindset that drives work ethic, which is to say, here's a problem. You got to figure out how to solve it. And however long it takes, whatever it takes, I'm not going to stop until the problem's solved. You have to find a way. You have to find a way, like you said there. Pull the tarp. Pull the tarp, right? Everybody pulls the tarp. Coach, when did you realize for the first time that you wanted to get into coaching? Probably after I failed Econ 1 in the Wharton School of Business at UPenn. No, I, I, you know, I, I toyed around with a couple of different things. You know, you go to Penn and you get caught up in it. And you know, obviously the Wharton School is such a prestigious business school. And you almost feel like you have to do business a little bit and you know, realize it just kind of wasn't really clicking for me. It wasn't my passion. And looked at some other things at, at Penn and, and just nothing really drove me like football did or sports did. Really, I was a sports junkie. And loved going here. We go down and play in the parks in Philly and play rec pickup basketball. And I just, that's who I was. And so, probably after my sophomore year, it just kind of, that was the avenue I felt like I was going to go. And so, I became a US history major just in case I ever had to get into teaching or had to use teaching as a background and become a high school coach and got in as a graduate assistant at Stony Brook and, and fortunately have, have found my way. When you think back to those early days of coaching at Stony Brook, that graduate assistantship, what was most surprising to you then? How much we got paid per hour. I don't think we ever actually reached anywhere near the minimum working wage standard in America. No, I, I think it was how we could impact kids. I think that was the thing really quickly in coaching was how you could have an impact on kids and, and how you could see over the course of my first six to eight years 
like some really good coaches have really, really positive impacts on kids' experiences in college, which ultimately I think leads them to a good spot in life. And and then the other way, right? Some some not so good coaches who negatively impacted kids and and you know didn't give them the best experience in college. And you just realize the impact you could have on kids at this age. Was there something back then that you worried a lot about, coach, that you maybe wish you hadn't worried so much about? That's a good question. I don't I don't know that there's one thing I would say that like I really worried about. We just always worried about doing the best we could. Like that's, you know, I met my wife in college. We got into this thing from the beginning. You know, when this all started, she was supporting me. I wasn't making anything. And we just both were kind of focused on doing things the right way and then figured hopefully it would work out. And obviously it has. Obviously it has. And I'm looking at that that big Duke D behind you. And I'm thinking about all the history that Duke has had in in so many sports and in basketball, the way everybody gets crazy in, inside that Cameron indoor. And I, I know, you know, the success you've had early on, the success that you're going to continue to have coach Elko, they're going to be going crazy in that, in that football stadium for decades to come with the Duke football program. I have had so much fun digging into your story, learning a little bit about what makes you tick. This has been a great honor. Thank you, coach Elko for uh, pulling the tart. You're part of the tart puller club uh, forever now. And uh, I can't wait to see uh, all the new chapters you continue to write in the story of Duke football and, and your own career. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on here. I think anytime we can spread the message about what we're doing here at Duke is, is awesome. We're doing something really cool and really unique. And the more people that hear about it, the better it is. Coach, this has been a lot of fun. We'll have to catch up again soon. All right. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for joining me this week. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you can catch all of our upcoming episodes. And if you are like me and want a world full of tart pullers, then leave a review to help others find us. You can also follow me on Twitter at Andrew H. Moses. That's Andrew H. Moses. And be sure to sign up for my email newsletter at everybodypullsthetarp.com slash newsletter. I'll share tips and insights to help you achieve maximum success and happiness. Today's a great day to pull the tarp. I am rooting for you. See you next time.